This is Swampside Chats, a podcast where every week, communists sit down to shoot the shit about current events, history, political economy, and theory. This week, we sit down to discuss two pieces in a Not One Step Back Comrades series entry. The first piece, and the main piece, is from Domenico Lacerdo, entitled Towards a Critique of the Category of Totalitarianism. The other, which we'll talk about much later in the episode, is titled Re-Envisioning Revolution and Communism. What is Baba Vakian's new synthesis? By... We don't actually know who it's by, but it's probably Baba Vakian. Um, We'll explain later. So we're talking uh, totalitarianism, um, and if there's time, we're gonna, we're gonna t- uh, talk about uh, talk about the Gospel of Bob. Maybe maybe it's worth reflecting on why we would put these two together. Well, back to uh, back to back to basics, you know. Just gotta praise. Yeah. Just gotta praise Bob. Maybe we should start by saying this is a not one step back request that is particularly late. And we're known for our, our late ones. The only later one is the the one we're supposed to do on Stalin and uh, the Rev Left Radio in- interview with the Proles of the Roundtable, which there's a listener out there who's patiently waiting, and thank you. Um, but this one's been sitting around for a while. It's uh, Domenico Lacerdo's uh, Towards a Critique of the Category of Totalitarianism from 2004. And then the and, listener, and then the listener decided, well, it'd be kind of funny if you guys did Bob Avakian instead. <laughs> so we're gonna see yeah, if we like, can do both. Yeah, over the last week. So Chairman Bob, the the leader and inspiration, uh, you know, one of those one of those real true leaders that comes around only once yeah. every millennium. Um. So we got, I guess, we got the new synthesis speech. Yeah. Bob, Bob Avakian is what I like to call. Lenin 2.0, but better. Oh, yeah. yeah. I think he's kind of like Jesus, you know? Jesus could turn, like, water into wine, and Baba Akin can get away with saying the N-word with a hard R. I think... <laughs> all, all is fair in love and slam poetry. Oh, God. That is some of the cringiest. Well, I'm, I'm, sure, I'm sure we'll have a clip of all played out in this episode, so the listener can discern for themselves... Whether they feel Baba Vakian's uh, lyrics are in good taste. Th- this is like an English teacher level problem, but do we bleep it? Hmm. No. No, we don't. No, we, well, we let him we let him ring loud and true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, somebody, somebody has to break that taboo on this podcast. So <laughs> I, I, I don't think... You know what? I don't think Baba Vakian's the man for the job. Um, <laughs> I, I, I don't... That's that's a belief I hold truly in my heart. Um, and anyway, I'm pretty sure Paul Cockshot was the first. So, no, he, let's not let's not slander the man. I mean, wh- whatever he else he may be, yeah, he didn't actually. It a, it's technically a different word. All right. it's a different word. Let's, let's just move yes. on. Let's just move on. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna hear this apologism. 
Okay, so let's talk about uh, uh, Domenico Lacerdo. Um, yeah, I think not that's Domenico Absurdo, which so is uh, it's hard for me to sometimes delineate. But apparently, he's got some good and interesting um, articles on class politics versus you know populism or what have you. We did not read those. Um, we read. This critique of the category of totalitarianism, which focuses in great part on Hannah Arendt's The Origins of Totalitarianism in 1951, and sort of as like a way of interrogating the category, sort of takes Arendt's work, at, and fairly, you know, this is sort of one of the standards in the tradition, takes Arendt's work as a jump off for an overall critique. And I'm just kind of looking at his Wikipedia page right now. Honestly, he looked like a nice guy, you know? Um <laughs> Yeah. yeah 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 like there's a good there's a really good picture of him like i don't like i don't have a picture of me that looks that good you know what i mean and is he a poet did he have no, a nice he's, mustache? he just has a very friendly look about him you know what i mean oh i gotta look at this yeah apparently he was he apparently he was friends with grover fur um but he didn't go like he, he didn't he didn't go as far as grover fur um you know he didn't want to exonerate stalin just kind of like situate him within historical context apparently um mm. right i mean this guy has been characterized as a neo-stalinist but you know i, I haven't i haven't really actually read anything by him before so i really have to look more at the rest of his work mm. that is a cute photo it is right yeah. all right all right i'll do it I'm, i mean it's, it's not it's not gonna blow your mind or anything i'm like oh you know like we're, we're not saying he's friend- sexy lexi we're just saying that he's, yeah, yeah. he's he looks cute oh know? yeah you know what Totalitarianism's all right after all. He yeah, all like right. I feel like if you zoom out, he'd be like petting a cat <laughs> in his arm. <laughs> uh, yeah, he he wrote he wrote uh, Stalin history and criticism of a black legend. Yeah, I I got the sense that he might be invested in the Soviet Union from this text. Did you? Mm-hmm. Okay, well I'll I'll just I'll just jump to the point that I was going to make. Then how about that? Um, I think the bet like the best one is kind of whataboutism, but it's also correct in that he kind of gets... He basically points out, like, a lot of the stuff that, like, totalitarian societies, like, supposedly non-totalitarian societies did as well. So it's kind of like, what is the usefulness of this distinction? You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I feel like this was a part... Was this a part of his, like, larger book on liberalism? Because it feels like it. It feels like it's a part of his book on, like, the, uh, what is it, the, I can't forget, the, the, whatever, the history of liberalism that he did. Like, um, it really seems to be a part of it, because what he's going about is sort of, like, critiquing the liberal critique of, uh, both the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany. I think liberalism a counter history might be a different book, but I do see that I agree with you that there's like a continuity in probably the ideas that would be in here. Yeah. Um but I actually don't know for sure. So I, I could be wrong. Yeah, yeah, this yeah, because uh the what about is Oh sort no. Of thing. I like think it, it actually might it, be from liberalism a counter history. I think you might be yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because the parallels that he draws between the United uh, the United States with man- manifest destiny, the way law, uh, the way Jim Crow laws are set up, 
and the development of the eugenics movement in the United States and the relationship between those and like uh, Nazi Germany seems pretty uh, familiar and a firm argument that's that has been made relatively repeatedly by a number of historical sources. Yeah, I think um, I'm not that deeply invested in the, the totalitarianism category myself, but I think maybe one of the reasons people do make that distinction is because you had the parallel rise of these alternative class societies that didn't entail the free rule of the bourgeoisie within this kind of, you know, roughly 20-year period. And so but I think they come from different historical bases. Um, but I don't think that saying the Western powers did it too is really addressing why everyday people approaching communism make these conflations in a way that's really going to attract or convince them. Because you're still kind of conceding that communists supposedly want to do this dystopian shit to society. I mean, it doesn't make sense to lump the USSR in with the Nazis, but not the Allied powers altogether in this kind of moralizing way. Um, and they come from different historical forces. But um, the what that they did it too thing. Okay, you've you've. I th I think the whataboutism is useful in the context of the di of whether that uh, the totalitarianism as a category is sociologically or like is sociologically useful, I guess, or like in standard poli sci sense because if if like the traits of totalitarianism altogether are not are not unique to the Soviet Union, Nazi Germany. If it if they can be found in democracies and that sort of thing, then the category the overarching category of totalitarianism doesn't really have much weight in terms of being a sociological category. It doesn't necessarily it doesn't necessarily have to be a defense of like the Soviet Union, but rather I mean, he probably does mean it as sort of a defense of the Soviet Union, but at the same time, it doesn't necessarily have to be that way. And I don't, and I feel that totalitarian, you don't really need to defend the Soviet Union to find the, uh, to find totalitarianism as a category, as a sociological category, not to be particularly useful in the studies of societies like Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union, the former Eastern Bloc, etc., etc. Well, here's a reason why there's a sort of, like, connection between the two, right? Like, you could form an interesting theory of totalitarianism, and he actually kind of goes there, like, not at the end of the essay, but when he's discussing the idea of total war and total mobilization and how these tendencies were best expressed and, like, maybe in their highest form, where, you know, risk of conflict was more direct and, like, it, like the United States ends up developing totalitarianism on, like, another basis or, or something. Like, that's the closest. And, and it dispenses with a, a certain Cold War usage of the term and, the cer and basically the political weight that it's supposed to have in the discourse, like the Cold War sort of weight um without you know like but it does tell you something about changes in society since world war ii 
I think it does. I think I and I think the dialectic of enlightenment stuff, like the the version of totalitarianism that is usually like name checked by Stalinists as a way of being like, well, liberals could be totalitarian too. You know, we fucking hate the Frankfurt School. Would have had them shot, but uh, I'm gonna <laughs> we're gonna point to them as a way of getting out of this argument. <laughs> um, like, it's it could it could still be a useful category. It could still be like a useful jump off here. I I don't think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't. Know. No, I, think, I, th- I think. I think. I think there's it, a reason. I think it, I think I think it obscures more than it clarifies, though. That's the problem with it. Like it, it doesn't. Like I mean, like it's if if there are all these like a, a okay. If you just want to say like okay, a totalitarian society will just define it as any 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 like advance in, or any industrial society where there's like a one party state and the government has like control over most of public life. It's like okay, I guess I guess you could say that, um, but. I mean, that's kind of some of that is just almost intrinsic of just having an advanced industrial society. Like, okay, let's say the United States, which isn't a totalitarian society, like we, like the government doesn't control most public life. It it sort of allows certain major private actors to separately each have a little piece of that sort of public space and media, right? Or, um, yeah, okay, there isn't one. There isn't a one-party state. There's like a, it's like a two-party state. And they both agree on like ninety percent. All both parties agree on like ninety percent of things, but are allowed like disagreements on things that don't harm um, certain privileged act- privileged actors in the economy, right? So it's like it's it's um it's there. It's just a it's something that you see like in both forms. There, like it's it's we're not as free as we. It totalitarianism seems to imply that like you know there's like this. It's like I I prefer the board's idea of concentrated versus um, diffuse spectacle. You know what I mean? Like it's kind of the same thing, but there's just like different like, yeah different like political regimes of managing it. You know, well, or different or different or, or different forms of like dissemination. But that's actually exactly the 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 way that I think of totalitarianism. That there's that wartime totalitarianism that you know even in the United States, you know arguably you know what are the japanese internment camps or concentration camps like and and you don't have all that much freedom you know like the classical bourgeois freedom during total war mobilization um you know you there was a period where you know fdr had term after term (laughs) like the the like uh it's 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 not like totally nuts to say that there's like a resemblance to the more concentrated form but um yeah, the residual form of totalitarianism that sort of you know wins the Cold War or what have you versus the one that loses the Cold War. Um, I don't know. That distinction makes sense to me. Uh I mean the thing is with like totalitarianism as a category, like like Jake said, it, it like it doesn't re- it obscures more than it illuminates, and I I feel like like totalitarianism as a concept really like it kind of gives. The, in a worse way, it kind of gives the regimes too much power to a certain extent. The extent in which they're able to control people, like, is, like, overestimated in the the amount of control in society. Like, you can't really have the kind of critique that Ticton has while also believing in totalitarian totalitarianism as a useful category because the chaos and the lack of control is something that is fundamentally at odds with totalitarianism as a social cat 
uh, sociological if, and political category. Not not it, if they it, try it, to control it and fail. It's it's highlighted in Lacerdo's critique. It's highlighted in Lacerdo's critique where it's basically what totalitarianism does. It simplifies the relationship between, you know, the state and, like, society as a whole. Like, it becomes a matter of, like, the indis indistinguishable mass and the charismatic leader in front and that sort of thing. And it's, there's a kind of romanticism underlying that, too. Like, this one charismatic leader can just sort of like have just like control essentially control the entirety of society through through this sort of machinery and through like this sort of like s religious connection to the masses it's a religious connection to the masses and you can definitely read in some orientalism and definitely some anti-semitism in totalitarianism as like a a category there's really? definitely there's anti-semitism in the category of totalitarianism yes no it's most normal it's yes it's yes nor it's I... normally associated with like nazi germany and the soviet union yes yeah i'm, I, I'm I ears can, i'm I listening can, I, I can hannah ardrin basically a great deal of like the category the development of the category of totalitarianism is a is a defense of heidegger it it is an indirect defense of Heidegger's politics and Heidegger as a Heidegger as a person, specifically out of Hannah Arendt, uh, Hannah Arendt uh, in particular, because she was a student of Heidegger, in fact, a lover of Heidegger. That they were at item. It was an extramarital affair, but they were at item, and Hannah Arendt went to visit him after the war and that sort of thing when he was all kept up in his you know in his little uh little uh Bavarian retreat or whatever and okay so how, how does she defend great. Heidegger specifically though uh well she does it in a way that like denies the denies specifically like agency on the part of like German actors so the whole uh the whole, uh, what is it? Are you talking about the out. banality of evil? The banality of evil essentially tries to render, like, these individual actors and subjects within, like, the, within, like, Nazi Germany as, like, only being actors caught up in this sort of religious specter of totalitarianism <coughs> rather than being, you know, genuinely evil people or, like, commit genuinely evil people. It, it's, it's something it's something that like kind of like wipes that it it wipes off like the sort of like it wipes the hands of like essentially actual nazis wipes the hands of nazis and it fits into a larger critique made by both heidegger and hannah arjun indirectly of industrial society uh heidegger more or less elaborates elaborates on it further but um i mean hannah Arendt does but essentially total of a sort of like me uh, i mean that that kind of cuts against most of what we would call like structurally anti-semitic and it has a lot in common with marxist historical materialism because like people are kind of within their class society thing 
And so they're willing to kind of deal with what they understand to be like the price of that class society. And it's not necessary. It's not like corrupt actors that have to do it. Um, and actually, I, th I think what her thesis was is that this is really evil, but like there's nothing special about the people carrying out the evil. Like their social situation made it so that participating in their society means that they contributed to great evil. That has a lot to do with Marx's, you know, critique of justice. Like, that's not, like, and it's, I don't know, like, it sounds like she went back and forth on whether Marx was a, you know, an SJW Jew or a, <laughs> <laughs> or a you know, a, a dangerous deflator of morality. And, yeah, like, it means at least she tried tried to read Marx, even if, you know, <laughs> didn't work out. <laughs> Oh, shit. There she is. Uh, Grant, you didn't... Did, I, I, I'm, I am kind of curious how the rest of that thought went. Um, you got cut off I before. was just going to say, you know, um, there's something contradictory to me about going... Totalitarianism is an ideological... Uh, it's an ideological ploy. But also, the West did it too. There's there's kind of a, con a contradiction in... Because... You're kind of admitting that there's kind of a meaningfulness to the category, but I'm not the I'm not that dedicated to it as a category so much as I'm just thinking, you know, if I were a worker in the Soviet Union, a wage laborer, it'd be little consolation to me that the Western world is bad too. That's kind of all I have to think. You know, you'd probably be put on a watch list if the authorities catch you reading too much Karl Marx. So I don't see the point of letting anybody think that we'd want that to happen again unless we would, you know? And so I just, I feel like the dancing around of apologizing for the Soviet Union as, you know, kind of historically necessary or something like that, it, it, even if you've got a good critique of the concept of totalitarianism, I just, I just wonder about, uh, you know, it's, it, I don't know. It's just people bend over backwards sometimes. Well, I mean, it's some no, it is like, it was, it's, it is like an incoherent category. I mean, like, okay, here's my point. Like, if you look at, if if non-totalitarian societies can produce all these atrocious outcomes, then like, how important is this really even as a distinction? And the other thing is like, it is. Well, I guess of, why is, I would it think it might like, be important is again what I said earlier, where you have these alternative class societies that, you know, um come out of these inroads that they try to make on the bourgeoisie um you know the soviet union a little bit more successfully but um you know the nazis themselves were trying to make a new slave mode of production um and so so yeah the uh the orientalism stuff checks out like i think i i think that's probably right but hanaren is is jewish and i mean her re her rehabilitation her rehabilitation of Heidegger is, of course, yeah, does do Jewish people a disservice and led to a lot of people being surprised that Heidegger was even a Nazi. Well, I, I actually have um, I have a quote from uh, Banality of Evil, and it's about Eichmann's Nuremberg trial. Um, so she says, under conditions of terror, most people will comply, but some will not. 
just as the lesson of the countries to which the final solution was proposed is that it could happen in most places, but it did not happen everywhere. Humanly speaking, no more is required and no more can be reasonably asked for this planet to remain a place fit for human habitation. Whatever that sentimental stuff tacked on the end there, it does seem she does see some room for agency and that her point was maybe just that Nazi criminals weren't, um, you know, we don't need to construct some some pathology where they're psychopathic to necessarily explain why they would do things that we would consider, you know, quote unquote, psychopathic. I think interestingly enough, though, like, um, you know, Arendt would kind of say maybe that um, maybe her rebuttal to you would be, but there were kind of, you know, quote unquote, the normies involved in the Holocaust. You know, you had the prison guards and all of that. But I would say, actually, one of the things that's interesting is the ways that um, Nazism really was not in the kind of social interests of the the German proletariat, for example, in in several ways, and that a lot of the the ways that they bound things to themselves, they created these kind of welfare programs and things like that that were supposed to, you know, but actually the welfare programs were not for their literal benefit. It was to give middle class people jobs administering them, and so. You know, I, I, I think that with Eichmann, maybe maybe what the banality of evil misses is fascism's petty bourgeois class basis. That's another thing that I feel is missing from totalitarianism as a category. It's really an understanding of class. Um, like, essentially, it it's meant to describe the state, but it doesn't describe the state within a class context. Mm -hmm. honest i think i think that's fairly easy to fill in that was the whole idea of the you know bureaucratic collectivism and the idea of like you know managerial class society or something not that i necessarily endorse that but like it's a way of think thinking about like the ways yeah, but, that you see convergence in in the, but, all three kinds of society but how do you how do you lump together then all of these like different like how do you lump together like Nazi like it forms of class society of like yeah like Nazi era Germany with like the USSR with like say um, Japan under like the un under uh, prior to World War Two say or um, which which Arendt never mentions by the way um, or yeah like any 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 of these other like extremely like like to me like honestly like authoritarian is probably more you know, like more evocative than like totalitarianism. I, like, get, yeah. I feel like totalitarianism, the whole idea is to like trace it back to like, I don't know, the French Revolution and be like, see, people who try and like change society from the top to the bottom, they just end up becoming these like, you know, centralized, uh, tyrannical organizations that, you know, go against human nature or whatever. That's, an, that's a weird tension that's even in our rents, earlier in our like work. This is something Lucerto, um, mentions that Arendt has a positive view of the French Revolution and recognizes the the fascist hatred of the French Revolution as, you know, being part of their ideology as being a counter-enlightenment one. Um, but, of course, that changes in Arendt's work when she incorporates a critique of Rousseau and the French Revolution. 
I mean, like, it's, it's really the problem with, like, the Soviet Union, like, that it, you know, that it tried to, like, address society as, like, a totality or that it tried to address things in a totalistic way. Is that really what was bad? You know what I mean? Or is is the effort to do that inevitably going to lead to, like, gulags and, like, a one-party state? I don't think so. No, but, like, one-party states and, like, censoring the press is probably going to, you know, lead down a certain road. Sure, but, like, I, 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 even Orwell kind of pointed this out that, like, you know, in England, like, there were just things that it was set up where people just wouldn't talk about certain things in the press, and there didn't have to be, like, a centralized state doing that, you know? Like, like even even Mr. 1984 himself could recognize that. I I guess I get why people make this conflation, and I just I just don't know that the Westerners did it too. Answers the fundamental thing people would be wondering about if they said to you, "Well, isn't communism totalitarian?" I mean, it just I don't think that I think Lacerdo does a good job complicating the category, but I don't think he answers that question. Well, I mean, but a lot of that is just, like, the public perception that people have based on ignorance. You know what I mean? They just don't understand, like, the historical context that these societies emerged out of. Like, I mean, once you start to zoom in on that, like, it start, it becomes a lot more clear. It's, uh, it's something you can get from reading what the fascists thought. They were just like, oh, shit, you see Bolshevism? Man, what if we could do, like, our Bolshevism? Like, Yeah, but we... we like, that's, like... Lacerdo even throws that Bukharin quote in. That Bukharin quote is great. But they yeah, also, I mean, the, the Nazis were also like anti-collectivists. They were like, we got to build up the individual, but within like this kind of like organic, like Volkish nationalism. You know what I mean? I don't know. Yeah, Nazi, not, it, Nazi Germany is not the same as as the Soviet Union. The what uh, the Nazis wanted to do wasn't the same as what the Soviets wanted to do. And like, but that's important, you know. That yeah, it's important, yeah. but it's a, the the idea of totalitarianism here. In regards to that, is an abstraction from that fascist adaptation of Bolshevik tactics and structures. That's like the organizational core there. Right. I, but I, can... I believe in a more diffuse. I I like the more you know concentrated diffuse thing but... that Jake was talking about earlier. I think that's like a better way of getting at. But you could like, argue what the difference is between these different kinds of societies is. Okay, but like but... when you have Mussolini and you know other people from the socialist tradition consciously adapting these structures to create fascism, there's it's not just ignorance. There's a rational kernel there. It's something that yeah. the actors themselves recognize. Okay, but you can argue that those like those adaptions could also have been like made from the Catholic Church. And Lucerto actually does argue that. He does argue that with a Hitler quote where he basically makes the connection between the Nazis and the Catholic Church, in particular the way the Catholic Church is organized, you know, it has social groups, it has, you know, day camps, that sort of thing. It organizes totally around around its members. It, or at least it used to. It, it, it does that less now than it has in the past but essentially right. it, it 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 can be drawn from Catholicism. you can argue that the catholic church or even like social democratic organizations of the time were totalitarian yeah. and like you that, have that, 
Is having a bowling league like the worst? <laughs> yeah, no. Like, Hayek explicitly does that. He explicitly argues that, you know, the roots of totalitarianism don't, don't necessarily come from communism, but they come from social democrats, socialists in particular, you know, just socialists in particular, you know, the ways in which they had day camps for kids and like you know, schools and stuff and like organ uh, and like, you know, hiking clubs, you, you know, that kind of like meddling with the lies of individuals rather you know, just having them instead of depending on bourgeois society having them <coughs> have independent independent organization of bourgeois society is the root of totalitarianism you know i mean like the catholic church comparison you know if the catholic church is trying to you know in a, the modern context muscle out you know all political opposition or something this is you know something the phalangists pick up on it's, it's not that crazy like in in spain that's not like all that crazy a comparison i don't think you know lucerto but it could it's trying to make it a, a reducto ad absurdum argument but you know like it's i don't think that's i don't think i don't think that's that, that insane well but like and, it could um, literally apply to any mass party it could well, literally apply to any party with a mass base that is has that is active in yeah. the lives of its members okay so let's talk about lasallian socialism and some of the tendencies that were happening in the socialist movement at the time. These are things that Marx was heavily engaged with, heavily critical of. Marx was, you know... Was he critical probably, of hiking clubs? I mean, he was critical of attempts to dominate all aspects of someone's lives. He wasn't against hiking clubs. But, like, what the mass parties he, of the 20th he was century represent is, is, you know like this uh, mass political period that could be expressed in a very, I don't know, more kind of diffuse way or a very concentrated way. When yeah. it got extraordinarily concentrated, it looks a certain kind of way. Yeah, you see, I don't necessarily, I, I, I don't necessarily buy that because the specific arguments against Lasallianism are about like the, the dependence on state socialism. It was state socialism. Mm -hmm. And what kind of state was that at the time in Germany? That LaSalle. Was, yeah, it was. It, it, was it, it, it's, it, it's not about like the hiking clubs and the specific ways in which the party interfered with the lives of people on that sort of level, on that well, sort yeah. of like social. So it has nothing to do with building a counterculture, basically. Like, yeah, it has to do with like the, yeah, or alternative institutions to bourgeois society. In fact, you could argue that Marx was for building alternative institutions to bourgeois society to the point where he argued against like schools in uh, public schools in the uh, uh, critique of the Gotha program because of its links to the state. So what would you have instead? You would have party schools. You would have schools organized by socialists and radicals you wouldn't have state-funded schools like the lasallians would so no he did not critique the mass party as a concept he critiqued lasallianism which substitutes you know organizing of the proletariat for state bureaucrat nonsense and what happens when your counterculture 
establishes a, like a state order instead of abolishing like the state or but, try, you know. But where 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 did the, where did that the happen state. though? Where where did it happen? It happened in Germany. It happened in Russia. Like these these were these were institutions that had you know deep like uh, like the SPD and the Bolshevik Party. They both had like deep roots in civil society. When those projects soured, like their control over civil society mattered. Okay, so but, but the SPD, like you talk about the like the Weimar Republic, or like, like, the, like the like the nineteen eighteen Ebert government. Uh huh. Right, like. But uh, was that like was, was, it, was, it was that called a, at was the time the German Revolution? It was. Was that a totalitarian to, society though? I mean, that's this is this is the Freikorps that kills you know Liebnik and Luxembourg, like. Mm-hmm. They do have a like a mob- like a full mobilization society at that point, and like yeah, like that could have gone one way or the other, you know. Like, but because of the character of SPD at the time, yeah, it does pre it does you know prefigure like the kind of social control that the fascists would later be able to use against the SPD. But like it wasn't like a. But even by like most totalitarian definitions, it wasn't like a single. The the Weimar Republic was not a single party state. They didn't no, have a monopoly true. on mean on uncontrolled or dissemination of information. Like, like yeah, that's what are you true. Saying? Like, it's but it's not necessary to argue that they're totalitarian. But that's but like the roots are there. That's all. Is it though? Yeah. <laughs> I, I wouldn't say no. I, I'd say no. Marx, Marx was one of the greatest critics of like yeah, but the tendency not, to turn this kind making, of social integration. Into, you're not giving specifics on how we did that, though. You're not at all, actually. Okay. You're not giving any kind of specifics. Like I was able to point to specific parts in which he would be supportive of a mass party. I can, I can. Of a mass the, party. Of a mass party, yes. That that okay. was the- when when does Marx come out to support the conception of the mass party? Not like a broader sense of party, like was common for most of Marx's life. Not like what he meant at the time of the Communist Party, which you know is is not the same as the mass party. Engels has a lot of full throated like embrace of the SPD, even though he's critical of this and that. But Marx is famously a little more skittish about it. He doesn't want to damage the project. But, you know, in his letters, he's not as gung-ho about it as Engels. Like, it's not, it's not that he opposes, you know, the ability to have counterpower and counterculture. Right, that's the thing. I, it's the it's potential for integration with the state that he's worried about. That's something that the Lasallians are fundamentally oriented towards. And a counterpower can eventually be integrated with the state. That's what happens with the SPD. That's what happens with the Bolsheviks. It unites both halves of the Neo-Kaltskist tradition. Something that, like, we all have to like struggle with. We want to see, you know, but isn't that a, a better isn't that communist like a, revolution? Isn't that like a tactical error, though? Basically, that that was then like the, it seems like that's like the result of like you know, like basically contingent like tactical like mistakes that were made. Not I, like the totally. project of build. Not like the project of like you know building up like alternative social institutions in and of itself. I mean. It's it's to say that the roots are there is not to say that like that's the fundamental like determining fact determining factor and in fact it's the main difference between you know the SPD and the Bolsheviks right is that you know the SPD like has the roots but doesn't really go there mm-hmm. you know the Bolsheviks do 
but there's multiple institutions that could argue could be arguably have the roots and they don't go there. In fact, most mm-hmm. parties of the time don't go there. So can you really say it's roots of it? Can you really say that the basis of total? Yeah, I mean, oh. ask Mussolini. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, that's well, the basis of all organized. That's the basis of all organizations, though. Like all like mass organizations, not even not. It doesn't even have to be political. It's just Catholic Church, not necessarily a political institution. Not necessarily a political institution per se. It's just religious organizations in general, you know, they have this sort of effect on people's lives. The evangelical church, before going into politics, had this sort of like position in the lives of people. You know, it, I mean, anything basically can be recuperated. I mean, but just by the nature of it operating within, you know. The sort of trying to create like a new world within the shell of the old, right? But because it exists in that brighter context, like anything can be recuperated. Yeah. Some of them are like set up as concentrated recuperation stations at like some point or, and some of them are just taken in eventually. But yeah, yeah, things can be recuperated. Sure. Like, and that's the story of, you know, so-called totalitarianism is like the, Things that could have possibly provided the counterpower to capitalism become like sucked in to some weird version of it. Or, I mean, I don't know, Soviet Union isn't capitalist, but, you know, so it gets sucked into like uh, class society and political control of that society. It, it's, it's no longer a counterpower. That, so yeah, no, no, I, I think I'm agreement. I'm in agreement with that part that it's like, it's not set in stone. It's like, there are other germs there. It does take something with that kind of force to overcome this. I, you know, I think we're outside like a moral critique of the SP day mass parties right now. We're not in that era anymore. And I do think, I do think there's something to be said for the idea, um, that the mass party as a historical phase attracted some of you know this the socialist movement's interest including marx but that a lot of the questions about it hadn't been answered uh you know by the time marx died or anything like that what's what's interesting to me in what lexi's saying is that the mass party system was not was not successful in representing social interests. And I think that it it glued people to politics in a more successful way than the current, uh, what I would call the cartel party, or I guess what Peter Mayer would call the cartel party system. But we are in that new cartelized party system and no longer in the mass party system. And I do think that that mass mobilization thing was an integral part of the the creation of these regimes. I don't know that that means that, you know, if, if you have workers form their own soccer club or something, that that's going to, that that's the domino effect to uh, Hitler or Stalin. I really wouldn't say that. But it is, I, I don't think it's a... I don't think it's a misguided question to ask how can how can political actors take advantage of these things. 
well, I mean, sure, but here's the thing: like you, to affect first of all, to affect any like kind of change, you have to like you have to basically organize like people. You have to organize people. You know what I mean? Like, like what do you have if you don't have mass organizations? Like, what is there? Well, I I think it's interesting because people I think people get tend to get it backwards, right? Because um, if anything, the only reason Lenin and the Bolsheviks were able to articulate a cohesive party was because they existed amongst one of the most advanced workers' movements in the world. No amount of activism in 1917 the United States would have made a U.S. revolution in 1917. You know, so was the rev? I I don't. Wait, the workers' movement in Russia wasn't actually that advanced. It was surrounded mostly by... It was mostly a peasant nation. I would say the workers' movement in Russia was pretty advanced by 1917. If you look at 1905 happening, the waves of mass strikes that happened, I mean, I I think it was clearly the most militant... I, I think it's clearly the most militant in the world if we're talking about the one that followed the Bolsheviks into the, you know, in... And I, I actually believe, too, that the Bolsheviks came to power with mass support. So I I just don't see how that's anything but in, in incredibly militant. Yeah, they, they, they were mil- they were they were highly like militant in the cities, partly because I think like the Russian bourgeoisie was so weak. I wasn't doubting their militancy, but to say they were the most advanced, I, I feel that's kind of weird considering that there are my. When you think of advanced movement, they weren't the majority of the population. They were the an active minority, but still a minority nonetheless. Most of the population was still like fundamentally peasants, and they were pretty reactionary peasants. It was hard winning over the peasantry. Well, I I don't know how reactionary the peasantry was, but if you if you talk about the um the facts of what I was getting at was that. You know, you 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 don't just create these, ma- these kind of quote unquote mass organizations, and then people like flock to them, and then. But that's not what we're talking about. Fair enough. Fair enough. Look, I I, I just um. Look, here's my point, though. Like, like absent, like, okay, yeah, like mass organizations could lead to like some kind of like state integration. Like mass organizations are basically so essential to any political project that like. Okay, I guess that's true, and that's something you got to watch out for. But who who wasn't aware of that? Like people at the time were fighting against that happening. And without these sort of organizations, you have these kind of situations where you have people in the street, you have them striking, you have them making demands, but fundamentally they can't really do anything. The existing organizations, even though they don't really have that much mass in the way of mass support, they're able to like stomp out these sort of like mass strikes. Or like, look at like the Arab Spring, right? Like they got the, they had like these like mass spontaneous like uprisings, but they were eventually just kind of reduced to, to like continually like begging the army to like change presidents. You know what I mean? Like, there's sort of a similar thing with '68 in Paris and that sort of thing. It's just something that's a continuum problem when you when you have that sort of like fetishism for what is supposedly spontaneous. You have to still have organizations that are able to take you know this sort of rise in the workers movement this sort of active militancy on the part of workers and move it and um uh and with other workers move it towards something broader that something more than just one one like mass one you know strike wave one arab you know one arab 
large protests. You have to get them to move beyond simply that and organize them in a meaningful way. Well, and, and the, the, oh, sorry, go on. And probably in a way that would probably be sort of akin to military. Um, you know, it's like bourgeoisie are not going to give up their fuck. They're not going to give up like power. They're not going to give up, you know, they're not going to give up their position of power without a fight. And you're not going to be able to wage like sort of like the kind of successful armed revolutions without actual organization. That that's something that the Bolsheviks ran into because, you know, initially going into it, they didn't want to set up the red army. They didn't want to set up the red army because fundamentally they were coming they're like their understanding of Marxism came from like what Marx wrote about the Paris Commune. And, you know, it's there in state and revolution it is, and their general desire was not to have a military, but to have militias. And they quickly found that their militias were not actually able to combat a professionally trained army with the special white army specialists and that's the, the czarist specialists and that sort of thing. And they quickly had to like, get into a situation where they were forced to like deal with specialists from like the from the former czarist regime and their military uh, generals officers that sort of thing and they were forced into a situation where they had to deal with these specialists and it broke another like concept of the commune state generally having all government officials be paid a certain wage a wage that is equivalent to that of the workers they couldn't have that specifically because the fucking specialists within the red army that were coming from the czarist regime refused to work refused to work either if they weren't fucking at gunpoint or if they were getting better wages than everyone else you know the other reason i guess i don't really i'm, I'm not really sweating the concept of totalitarianism too much in like 2019 is because like of the state of like you know, triumphant, like, global, like, liberal capitalist society and, like, the outcomes it's producing, you know, like, like, this, like, free, like, free liberal society created the NSA, you know, to have the CIA basically running around the third world getting up to all kinds of shit, and basically anytime anybody votes to do something to, like, you know, advance their own material interests that are go against, like, American businesses, they're like, nah, you're not gonna do that. That's the end of that. Uh, you and we're we have we're building like this massive climate crisis that is pretty almost ecologically suicidal. Like the like the sh the sheer like level that they're just kind of gunning it in the face of all you know evidence and like feedback loops that seem to be coming in worse than some of the more pessimistic projections from climate scientists. You know what I mean? It's like if they can if they can literally just like tank things that hard. You know what I mean? Like is like okay, we beat totalitarianism. Uh, and now we got this. Cool. Now we don't have those soccer clubs and the hiking trips and the bowling leagues and all that. We don't have <laughs> any of any of the like mildly positive aspects of like these yeah. horrible things. We can't even throw a decent parade. You know, like Trump, Trump threw that fucking parade. It was like the saddest, most pathetic thing. They didn't even put it on TV. Look at the North Koreans parades. Look at those totalitarian parades. They're in lockstep. It's colorful. You got acrobats and shit. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like It makes the parades like run on time. Juche makes yeah. the parades run on time. <laughs> Say what you will. Incels yeah. would not exist 
you wouldn't have incels in the hospital. <laughs> there, there are no incels in the Soviet Union. No, uh, yeah, you get your you get your state mandated uh, wife, Christ. you know, to help you help you see, after see, work or if this is or if you uh, see, milk, the, milk the cows, you know. Saint, this is uh, this is where it goes. <laughs> this is where and, it goes and that is why the Soviet Union was the most emancipatory society to exist. For 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 men <laughs> and for men's rights. Yeah. Okay. You know? All all I want all I want is my state. I want a st- I want a stout I want a stout wife. I want a stout wife with a scarf oh. above her head, holding a thing of wheat. You know what I mean? Oh she's br- she's putting food on so- the table socialism, too. Socialism. You know so- that's fi- state that's, socialist that's mommy. 50, 50. That's that, that's fifty fifty. I don't have to be anybody's sugar daddy. I don't have to pay buy anybody's shit. They're bringing wheat home too. You know? <laughs> Y'all got y'all laugh, but Virush, you know, he seriously considered it. He seriously considered it because uh, he made some pretty serious annotations on a book called Socialism and Women or something like that. That was done uh, Sex Under Socialism or something like that. A book that was done by uh, the Swedish uh, or S- Swedish something like North. Uh, Scandinavian socio- uh, feminist sociologists who did like a study, like, like studied, like uh, uh, went through the statistics for East Germany in terms of like relationships, that sort of thing. And sh- what she found was generally like the relationships that women had in East Germany, they were they were married more more lower divorce rates and the relationships for like both women and men were generally like better off from polling that was done in East Germany compared to that of the West. And generally they, they lost that with the fall of East Germany, the, the, the numbers, uh, divorce rates rise with the fall of East Germany and East Germany becomes like a poor shithole. So wait, you're so, so uh, you're saying Roosh V, the terrible MRA guy, like used uh, what's what's her name? Chris, I think it's Kristen Godsey's book, um, and it's called uh, "Why Women Have Better Sex Under Socialism." Is that's the one? Um, so you're saying that Roosh V used some like Marxist feminist, like uh, East German defensist book as a way of arguing for state mandated mommy GF. You know what? Totalitarianism has makes no sense to me anymore. <laughs> yeah, to be fair, it ball. was it was not it was actually not she's not a defensist at all though. She's just a social democrat. Oh. She's this, she's like a social democrat and she, she argues explicitly against like the totalitarian elements of like East Germany <laughs> and that sort of thing. Due to the like extensiveness of East Germany's welfare state compared to that of West Germany's welfare state, women in East Germany had more room to choose their men, and generally better because they weren't in a position where they needed the men in order to provide for them. They were relatively independent, and thanks to the welfare, the extensive like child support and things of that nature in Eastern Germany. They were able to raise their kids without uh, raise their kids and have like decent, like solid marriages. Well, yeah, because a lot of times what people fight about is like money. So, so wait, so wait, does Rushvi hate this because it 
empowers women or does he love this because it it gets rid of child support i don't think he caught the overarching argument and was just thinking oh yeah in a liberal society the where women are more free uh, whatever it sounds like the the turkish rapist i i don't know what what the hell yeah. he sounds like but this is just basically like yeah get owned liberals this totalitarian hellhole is better than <laughs> it has less incels <laughs> therefore it's cool actually yeah. there are no incels in the german democratic public yeah. we, we got 10 minutes do you want to talk about bob Avakian? <laughs> i think yeah i mean i think it's whew. One one thing that we didn't touch on really is this kind of dumb notion of totalitarianism that it all flows from the pen of Marx or Hegel, and that if you read Hegel, you know, or Marx, I think it's probably more true for Hegel than Marx. If there was any way to undo some of this in Hegel, it would be through Marx. But like that, somehow it creates a system of thought, right? That is so ideologically like closed off by nature. That it it's using enlightenment language and it's claiming to get you to a deeper understanding of society. But what it really does is kind of like lock you into a framework that you can't like see beyond. Um, like, obvi- obviously, I don't think any of us really agree that that's like going to be, you know, that that stems from the pen of Marx and that's like the inevitable outcome of his thought. Um, I mean, even at the limit, you know where he's arguing with Bakunin about the dictatorship of the proletariat, it's clear that Marx doesn't mean the thing that, you know, it ends up being that Bakunin's pointing to. Um, it's not the only way you can take Marx's thought. But there is a kind of way of doing Marxism that it seems like no matter how much you, like, half rethink different things, like, if you stay in the framework, you're kind of going to be... Just strangling and smothering. I think maybe that's one way of approach on Bob Avakian, Chairman Bob, and the new synthesis, right? Well, I think Jake only has nine minutes, but... Jake only has nine minutes. Yeah. Um, we we could try... We, we could probably get nine minutes out of out of Bob Avakian. Um, you know, I mean, honestly, it's... I, I was thinking this would be funny to make fun of, but I I don't know. Honestly, reading it, like most of it was just kind of like boilerplate communist shit. Uh, if you if you just take Bob Va- Bob Avakian out of it, it's just kind of a decent you know sort of pamphlet. You know what I mean? Like it's just you know there's just like this weird thing where like you know Bob Avakian is like grasps some kind of like hidden secrets or whatever, and what they expl- what they explain that he's that he's grasped is just you know stuff that everyone on but anyone who's kind of studied Marxism already knows. And the rest of it is just like mystified stuff that you have to sort of enter into the cult to find out about, which means there's nothing there, you know? So, you know, I mean, I think that on some level, this kind of reminds me of like, I could see why this is like effective because yeah, they basically, they break down all of these concepts in very like relatable layman's language, which, you know, sometimes people don't do often enough and they do it in a way that doesn't necessarily a hundred percent just kind of like chase modern trends, you know? It's kind of laying things out, and but it's doing it to like kind of bait you to basically join their fucking stupid. Well, well I think where where Avakian kind of strays too is that um, or whoever 
wrote this for the RCP and extensively quoted Bobovakian, quoting Bobovakian or whatever, um, and sometimes switched between I and Bobovakian. <laughs> yeah, this might have been written by. Did you this might that? have been written by Bobovakian about Bobovakian. I'm pretty sure this was written by Bobovakian. Yep. He's been known to like write stuff about himself. Like, I mean, there was one thing, one time where it's like uh, we we need to appreciate like Bobovakian and like what he does for this organization. But it was very clearly like <laughs> Bobovakian. Yeah. Like, so anyway, I I think there is this yeah. kind of condescending, and I think this is very emphasized in Maoism, especially, which is where the RCP kind of comes out of. Um, there's this tellingly condescending view of the masses, um, and there's this language of us and them that's very strong. You know, you've got the enlightened leadership that guides the proletariat, and it it just um, there's something about it that that mentions leadership a lot of times, and it's sort of like Bobovakian being like, "That's me." Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, that, that, I mean, that, but that's what's, I mean, there is there is leadership like in proletarian movements, but like the idea that like Bob Avakian has something special to bring to the table. Well, is there, there's absurd, a very there's you know? a very strong conception too that it's it's got to be it's it's you know communism. They basically say that it says something, and it it paraphrases Lenin, and I think it's even actually a disservice to Lenin to to do this, but. Avakian basically says here that um, communism didn't come out of the proletariat. It has to be introduced to it. Now, I'm not saying there's no role for socialist intelligentsia or whatever, but I'm pretty sure Karl Marx was looking at what was going on in the proletariat, and that's where the theory came from, and not the other way around. Yeah, like yeah, I mean, there's yeah, like Marx's analysis of like political economy would be something that maybe doesn't emerge organically from the proletariat, but like communism, you know, definitely did. The the basis for communism, like the mass movement and like proletarian character, yeah, proletariat, it can't exist without communism, and it can't be based without the proletariat. Right. I mean, Marx was looking at these things that were happening in real life and going. Hey, all this utopian shit you guys talk about, there's, you know, it's kind of BS the way you frame it, but there's this class that could actually make some of this shit real. Um, you know, it's some of some of your anime, some of your an- ancient animes can be a reality. I mean, even even utopians like uh what is the British one, Robert Owen like had workers movements going essentially. Like they they even Robert Owen knew like you know, it had to be based within the proletariat, though. You know, this just like the Owenites were like common among Owenite organizers were common, and were like the a good bulk of like the people who organized the um, what is it, uh, the Charitas movement. But you know, e- even then, they kind of knew that it was had to be based in the proletariat, even though they thought they could like build a mini version of the future society in the society as it exists entirely like in a glass jar sort of that kind of utopian thought i guess impulse was still there but yeah yeah no it i i, I just it, when i tr- tried reading this it's like 
okay, Bob, yeah, that's, yeah, you're right, communism isn't inevitable, but, like, that's not your, you didn't discover that, you didn't discover that, Bob Vaakian is the used car salesman of theory, he's he's selling you, he's selling you rustier, badder versions of ideas that were already like thought of and like what are you yeah. t- are you telling me are you telling me that chairman bob didn't invent the correspondence theory of truth no he invented the new synthesis which is basically uh, we need to do the good things that 20th century communism did but don't do the bad things but he's but dial- he says he says in here that it's not run the good plays and and don't run the bad place. He said it, and he said that he critiques he critiques Mao, and he said that he critiques Stalin, and and he said that he's radically revised the you know Marxism. It's a new synthesis. By the way, mm. do any of us know what the new synthesis After is? After reading this, no. no it, it what it sounds no what it sounds like is uh, don't do the good things, not the bad things. You know, so it's but but yeah. Jake he said that that's not what he means. But that's that's what he discloses here. Yes, I'm guessing is you know it's like you have to like join the cult and get to like to OT clear level seven or whatever before right. they tell you what it is and that's nothing you know. I mean, how different is this from I don't know like this? Okay, so the boilerplate thing kind of bugs me, right? It's like you could agree with like a lot of this, at, except for the part where he claims to invent something like you know, I don't know, like. Aristotle's theory of truth or, you know, the critique of instrumental reason, right? Like, or critique of pragmatism or something like, so besides that, we could read so much of this, agree with so much of this and really like the problem wouldn't be with his analysis, right? It like, it's so much of this analysis is kind of fine, especially towards the beginning. It gets really loopy towards the end. You could imagine the speech being delivered. And, you know, people being really interested at first and then just things sort of unraveling from there, if they're interested at first. Um, well, yeah, and like if it, if it wasn't if there wasn't some truth to it, you know, it wouldn't take people in, you know. Right. And I, I guess like it's just I don't know, like clearly there's like a habit of thought going on here that is a grift. Right, like that Marxism is so easily adaptable for a grift. I mean, it's not something. It's some- you can adapt anything for a grift, though. Like some people took, like I don't know, the fucking founding fathers and turned it into the secret and made millions. You know what I mean? Well, like you can turn anything into a grift. I, I get think that. it is pretty significant that um, you have the authority. The you have an authoritarian streak of the socialist movement that's already there by the time Marx arrives in it. He's its greatest critic, but then <coughs> that actually makes sense of why the 20th century left would eventually benefit from an ideology that is essentially a weird giant Marx religion. You know, it's very neutralizing of pretty much the most inconvenient, dangerous voice in your theoretical history. Um, and so it it just seems to me like, you know, Marxism as it currently exists is a great place for Marx's thought to die. And I think that, you know, the fact that Avakian can spell out some of the basics and still come to this completely not emancipatory conclusions says a lot. 
Well, they are emancipatory conclusions. He calls for revolution, but it's just a meaningless gesture, right? And he basically just wants people to join the RCP because, you know, that's like that's like his little like revenue generator that you probably helps him pay the mortgage or whatever that he has in the French vineyard he's living on, you know? And the, the problem with Marxism is that, you know, it's just it's kind of just scattered to the winds because, you know, the workers movement, the communist movement repressed in the United States. And there's no like center of there's no like center of it at all. It's completely decentered. And so you just kind of have like, yeah, different like, you know, p- different fucking entrepreneurs, basically, like setting up shop. And probably the ones that don't get co-intel pros are going to be the shittiest ones that are just kind of you know designed to like channel people into dead ends. So yeah, that's just kind of the it's just a, it's just a commentary on the state of where we're at right now. We're basically reduced back to the point where we were with like utopian socialists in like the dawn of the nineteenth uh, century, you know. But it's we worse because were... the state is so much more powerful. Oh yeah, the state's more powerful. Workers' movement is just starting to get back on its feet. Hopefully, maybe. And we're, and we're we're getting our we're getting our utopian socialists we're getting our lasallians our richard wolves our richard wolves you know we're we're getting them we're we're getting them now but you know it's just how how do we not repeat the exact same thing the exact same situation over again and that that's that's not something bob can really comment on and he actually spends time like critiquing. He does critique Stalin. He, crit- he does like critique that kind See? of authoritarianism, where he's like, you know, it's it's not. It wasn't in touch with the people. Well, yeah, you but know? then like, he goes, you know, but but you know. it's it's like, oh, you know, like Mao did some stuff wrong, but it, I just don't understand this wavering about these these regimes that just fucked up, you know. I mean, yeah. I mean, Mao, Mao did some stuff wrong. He did he did some stuff right too. You know, he was a complex human being. Grant, you know? Grant, we 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 must uphold his achievements, but you know, listen to criticisms. We should. Def- he's right, though. Like, we should like defend like the things that these societies. I just did can't well, imagine you know? like, sitting in a in a you know one of their concentration camps and really caring about the historical <laughs> dialectic. You know. <laughs> But here's the thing, like the you know the problem is that so much like critiques of these societies is that they act like they act like Russia was set up like Soviet Russia was set up to succeed. They act like they act like these societies were set up to succeed and they just fucked up because human nature or totalitarianism or you know whatever. Like it's not what happened. Like these these like, like Cuba isn't just poor because like Castro threw some gay people in jail. Like they're poor because they've been under blockade by their natural trading partner for sixty fucking years. They're they, they tried to assassinate the president like you know hundreds of times. Like that matters, you know. We can uphold the achievements of Cuba. Like, look what they've they, they've made that fucking lung cancer vaccine, and they're dirt fucking poor because they don't they have socialized medicine, you know. Oh yeah, Mao wasn't in touch with the people or whatever. Whatever moral condemnations or defenses, I'm more interested in how do you avoid that? How do you how do you build the structures like organize, you know, sort of a democracy, a workers' democracy in a way that benefits the workers and keeps this sort of thing from not happening again. Well, and I'm not, yeah, I, 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 we're not, we're not going to find it in Maoism. We're not going to find it in map in Bob Vahakian's Maoism. And I, and in a good deal of Marxism, we're not going to find it. It, it may, it, you know, maybe Paul Cox shot. 
as bad as he is all around. <laughs> I'm listening, babe. I'm listening. Incorporating elements of direct democracy and, you know, going maybe a little bit closer to the commune form, although we can't entirely achieve the commune form overall that's, like, described. Uh, that's Rosa, like, like, at base, what separates Paul Cockshot from the new synthesis? Well, Paul Cockshot has actual, like, math equations i know you didn't ask me so no but right is it but so it's a new synthesis with math equations look i take the equations seriously you know i do that socialists why do they study value theory i don't know but i'm doing it right but like also his politics like the way that he ends up coming out for socialism for marxist whatever they call it for fucking stalinism even in the qualified way that he does by saying that it was a form of marxian socialism like, if you're going to be fucking, like, an analytical whatever, like, it's not Marxian socialism. It's weird, because, like, essentially what he recommends is almost the complete opposite of what he's trying to defend, like, 90% of the time with the Soviet Union. It's right. like, uh, what if we had elements of direct democracy and we don't have a party state? And he, he's willing to, like, do all these critiques, but then... He tries to defend like the Soviet Union in its entirety with Stalin. Well, and the thing is, too, yeah. he, sh- he shows his work and he doesn't like he's not trying to get you to join some weird organization. You know what I mean? He's just saying, hey, this looks cool. You know what I mean? Like that's you, there's a like certain like kind of like level trains. of transparency there. You know, you like my model trains, gal. <laughs> <laughs> you impressed with my train set? Yeah, that's, that's the Paul. And that's better. I mean, it's not. I mean, obviously, dude, he's you know problematic. We've talked about this a million times, but no, no, no. But you see why I'm saying that, right? Like in Paul Cockshot, there's no reason he has to def- like, like he's advocating something fundamentally different, right? There's no reason to even really like. You don't have to go there. You can just be like, look, like this had Marx's head on it. It doesn't look a whole lot like what he was envisioning. I don't see like. I don't really see, I don't see why this is necessary. Like, and Jake, just to echo something you said during our discussion of Lacerdo, like, fundamentally agree that, like, some concentrated form of totalitarianism, like fascism or Stalinism, is clearly not our biggest problem, right? But the only reason it's a problem is because we have to keep relitigating history with, you know, people that wish for a better 20th century as opposed to setting sights on the 21st century. And, like, Avakian is a new left hangover. He's got some kind of excuse. I mean, he's a cult leader, too, so I don't want to just deprive him of agency. But, like, you know, he's got an excuse maybe for being wrapped up in old shit. The Cultural Revolution happened during his organizing period, or whatever. Like, during his, his prime. And that's clearly the cue that he's taking off from. I, I guess, you know, we just, I don't know. We don't have the same, we don't have the same, like, excuse. Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to look back on these things and learn from history, you know? Me too. Like, the thing is, yeah, I mean, the circumstances of the 21st century are going to necessarily be very different. But I do think we can kind of, like, pluck pieces of, like, the best, a- like, he is right. Like, we do need a new synthesis. We should look to the good things and discard the bad things. <laughs> like he's not wrong <laughs> about that. It's just a, a banal observation and not com- unique to him at all. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I I feel like it's still 
in the same way it's important to defend the French Revolution, it's important to defend like the you know defend like the Russian Revolution and the but even the Chinese Revolution in the sense that these end up being proxy arguments for future events later on. Like, you know, you can never, you can never really avoid calling back on the imagery of the past, no matter how much you want to, no matter how much, because, you know, the way history turns out, we're continually affect, affected by it. And we're going to probably end up being calling on the imagery of the past and calling on that, you know, even if it really haunts us, in the way that it does now. I mean, it's it's one thing it's, it's one thing to say you can't avoid it. It's another thing to do is like skin it and like wear it as a costume. You know. Here, here's part of the problem. So much of the arguments that you're going to have about the Soviet Union and some of the criticisms that you're going to hear are coming from people who are hypocrites or hypocritical, whether they're acting in good faith or not, because they don't understand like the context, right? They just kind of have like, you know, the Soviet Union is just a bad guy and like American like ideology and mythology so much. It has such a hold on people that even now they're like blaming Russia for things going bad yeah. in the United States. Yeah. You know, against against all, and and using communist imagery to like describe what's happening, you know, yeah, like on the right. It's it, it's yeah. it's founded. It's founded in utter pig ignorance. So we have to basically ex contextualize these things so we can get to a place where we can criticize the Soviet Union without hypocrisy. Well, wouldn't that wouldn't that criticism then be I think the Russian Revolution was an incredible historical moment, but the society the 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 society that came out of it isn't really what I want to see. Sure, but we can also look we can also point to even under the even in the later periods like there were, you know, concrete achievements that were, you know, noteworthy from the Soviet Union. And I think we can we can I mean, we can look, also hold on, cuz we can talk about Cuba even and it's like Okay, like, um, you know, there are Scandinavian countries that achieved, like, great, you know, statistics about such and such welfare thing, too. That doesn't really make our argument for a totally new kind of society. No, but it, 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 it points to the viability of alternative ways of doing things, right? Like, look at the Cuban example, right? Cuba's dirt poor, yet they get, like, way better outcome, healthcare care outcomes than they should compared to us, right? And that basically demonstrates how sort of corrupt and broken the system that we have is, right? Because a lot of people just accept it as, this is just the water, this is the, what we swim in, this is what we live in, so we don't even see it, right? So you can even point to, you can, or... You know, or you can point to the fact that like people go, all oh, these societies are shitholes because they're socialists. It's like, okay, yeah, maybe, but it could also do have to do with the fact that there was like a global civil war to like stamp out socialism and communism. You know, that the Soviet Union became totalitarian, quote unquote, like under afterwards because there was a fucking civil war that was like backed by like imperialist powers to again like stamp out people's efforts to you know all collectively own the means of production and distribute you know, the proceeds from it in a way that doesn't benefit like a handful of like private actors, you know, like that's, that's, that's the point. That's the purchase of like defending that stuff. And not, not to say that like we want to recreate that kind of society, but just that again, these things weren't set up to succeed and you can't just act like you can't just, you can't divorce them from the broader historical and geopolitical context at the time. And if you do that, you, I think you cede way too much ground to the right. I think there's got to be a way. I actually think some of the points you just made are very fair. I just think there also has to be a way to address this debate and, like you're saying, not get caught up just nodding along with the politics of anti-communism from the 20th century, 
but also that draws a distinct line, you know, and doesn't equivocate to people about, like, hey, no, we're not trying to create a world that, like, is fueled by, you know, the same things that that world was fueled by. Like, just that, because nobody wants it. Nobody wants the Soviet Union again. I mean, the people well, in not Russia, nobody. People in Russia <laughs> want it because they got to be an empire. But um, it's not just empire. They the standards of living literally dropped of, off. Yeah, yeah. It's um, dropped off completely for them. And you could argue that a great that the number of people that died because of that is comparable to that of the Ukrainian famine that the capitalists go on about. Well, I, I guess I just what I mean by that though is that if we need to reclaim Marx's idea of a free association of producers, and we need to put that vision forward more so than we need to defend these regimes that would have had you failed for looking at too much Marx. Right, but the call to return to Marx in general and... without examining the history of the Soviet Union, without examining the history of... Oh, examine uh, it, but examine it through a Marx lens rather than a Marxist lens. <laughs> right. I, I just... I, I kind of get skeptical with that. I just... I kind of get skeptical with that because I... I see that all the time. I see it with Pastone. I see it with uh, Jehu. Even. I, I see it with almost everyone. And they butcher Marx. They 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 take up the true Marx. They take up, you know, finding what he really meant, and they just they butcher it. And at this point, I I feel like it's it's better to just you know it's better to think of it as Marxism. It's better to think of it as political economy even than than to try and like claim up this like true mantle of Marx stuff. I I feel like that's a failed rhetorical tactic that just leads to all sorts of like weird cultism as well like a, a different kind of cultism a cult, sort of cult of personality around pastone and um just, you know sort of like ac- academics like heinrich and that sort of thing particularly with value form types the the pastone and heinrich and the value form nerds uh, are a kind of cult that's you know Probably not as harmful as like uh, Stalin. Probably not as harmful as yeah. like our revolutionary communist party. Actually, you know what? I I think anti-dorchers are pretty fucking bad in terms of weird cultiness. <laughs> and uh, never mind, never mind. They're they're pretty they're pretty even. They're pretty even in terms yeah, of you like. Think, you think so? Yes, yes, I do. Yeah, have, you heard of, have, you that, an, have you read any? Have you read any anti Deutsch? But I don't. I don't know. I'd, I don't know if I'd pin that on Postone. Well, no, and you. But they're heavily influenced by value form theory, heavily, and they are heavily yeah, influenced we, we just, by Postone's concept of anti-Semitism. And they're didn't know we just go through this the thing about how you know Mussolini adopting the Bolsheviks didn't count. You know, like. This counts. This this transfers. Well, he didn't. He didn't. He didn't reject them outright in the same way that Lenin probably would have if he were alive to see Mussolini become a fascist. And the Bolsheviks actively rejected the fat. Like Pastone. Pastone didn't reject the anti-Deutschers. In fact, he just kind of fed into them, and he knew 
there there's you probably knew about the you probably knew about his influence on them and the way he critique goes about critiquing the palestinian movement the the palestinian movement for national liberation it, he he knows what he's feeding into with anti-deutsch types in germany uh, it's and definitely the right wing of the social uh what is it what is the die link yeah die link the lincoln one sorry yeah they are just as weird and culty as your average maoist the only thing that really separates them is like one is cheering on well you know with hardcore tankies they're cheering on russia with with um freaking uh with uh uh, anti-Deutsch types, they're cheering on Israel and the United States. That's what fundamentally separates them. You know, it's all theory cults all the way down. I mean, I don't think it's, I don't want to beat up on Marxism too much for like starting cults. Cause like people can make cults out of all kinds of shit. I know this has been like a refrain I've had this episode, but like yeah, yeah. there was a comment that flew by one time and they were like, Hey, that's actually a spaceship. And if we all drink this Kool-Aid, we're going to go up and do it. Is that the comet's fault? You know? <laughs> I'm just explaining why I'm skeptical of like the true Marx rhetoric. I, uh, you know, we've seen it before. We've seen it repeatedly, and it, it just. I rather just go about it in an honest way and say, "Hey, you know, Marxism isn't a closed system. There need there needs to be stuff added to it. There needs to be stuff thought about it. You know, uh, dialectical materialism needs, you know, needs to like." get in line with complex systems theory and that sort of thing. And I don't think anyone here would disagree with that. I mean, yeah, I mean, do you see the value form people talking about that? No, they're trying to purge. They're trying to purge any kind of connection to any kind of science possible. So they can have Marxism as sort of like a right Hegelian conception you know, right Hegelian cult, essentially. That's what they're trying to do. That's 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 what they're trying to do. Is they're trying to purge Marxism of any real political content and reduce it to this sort of like scholastic, uh, scholastic masturbation. I mean, I'm sorry. I think, I think I think the value formers are hardly the first to do that. Like, no, yeah, they aren't the first. I'm just saying I'm pointing to them as a particular example of a broader thing that happens particularly among certain academics. For sure. Academics, like, you know, independent journals, what have you. Like, there, yeah, there's a lot of, like, unofficial ways of doing, like, a sim similar kinds of cult of personality authority. And ultimately, when we're dealing with the Revolutionary Communist Party and Baba Vakian, yeah, we're dealing with a complete cult of personality like my favorite part is in, in this one it was at the end it is like a masterpiece because at the end of the article it's sort of like a master stroke right you have baba vakian who keeps like inconsistently changing his name to be in the third person or changing the first person pronoun to be in the first person baba vakian in the conclusion like is quotes an article that quotes himself so there's like two sets of indents it's like a, it's a masterstroke like it's it's like a self-parody of self-reference he's constantly hawking his books throughout e it, like even in prints there's one like yeah 
Like, yeah, it, this is going to be out this month, so go to the table in the back. You know, like, it says this on the website. Like, it's kind of, I don't know, quite clearly a grift. Like, cult of personality, this sort of, I don't know, way of treating Marxism as a, you know, European and sometimes Chinese, like, wisdom tradition that, like, you can import and channel the virtue of those movements and revolutions through, you know, the great teachers. It ends on a great note. Get with, get with the new synthesis. Be a part of emancipating humanity. And uh, if you want to be a part of emancipating humanity, you can uh, subscribe to our Patreon. Uh, we got three donation tiers. Uh, one, five, and ten dollars. Uh, for one dollar, we'll let you talk to us. Yeah. You can uh, talk to mediated out this. fearless yeah. leaders. Great leaders. The yeah. Great leaders don't come yeah. often in history. Yeah. It just so happens you have four at your disposal right now, dear listener. And believe it or not, like we actually have a 300-episode plan to eventually, through these reading series, elaborate a new synthesis. Um, we will synthesize everything we've been talking about, cybernetics, uh, Marxism, uh, Juche, all of it together into like a, an overall new vision for the future. And if we've learned anything here, it's that ideals alone can change history. And if you just develop like the bright, pure ideas, they'll never actually be defiled by the, the winds of contingency or the hurricane forces of class society. And that it will, it will inspire the masses in a pure way to engage in the revolt that they desperately need to undertake. That's it for this week. If, uh, if you want to support the show... You know what to do. You know what's right. So what are you waiting for? Get on it. That's it. So until next time, keep your boots clean, your feet out of the swamp, and your head in the revolutionary clouds of tomorrow. <laughs>